Hello, welcome to This Week in Film Technology with Charles Haynes. So this is a weekly podcast about all that is happening in the world of film technology. It is specifically designed for those of you who are not following every single tech story that comes out. I'm going to try and focus on the two or three big key stories that make it really relevant for you as filmmakers to keep your work current. Also, I always like to say it's the kind of thing that you're going to end up talking about when you go in for a meeting, right? You're stopping by a post house. You're talking to the colorist. The news that's going to be sort of the chit-chat is going to be the stuff we're going to try and cover in this conversation so you can stay current on what's going on without having to learn about every single firmware upgrade for every single camera out there. So the biggest story right now is, again, another year of Sundance has happened, and the big news out of Sundance technology-wise, as always, is the continuing dominance of the Arri Alexa. Many camera manufacturers are out there really working on trying to do amazing digital cinema cameras for low cost. But if you look at the list of what they shoot Sundance films on, whatever the lens is, it is always the Alexa Mini. And there's a lot of reasons for this. One of the reasons, obviously, even though it's a 10-year-old sensor at this point, Alexa put a tremendous amount of work into making a really robust, fascinating sensor that is, like, strong and powerful. And having that as an ability to build the rest of the camera on is really useful. It's also a really lightweight camera body compared to the full-size Alexa. So people really enjoy getting to shoot a lighter camera that's not going to be as heavy on their shoulder all day. But simultaneously, it's got that full Super 35-millimeter sensor size, so you can work with all of your classic cinema lenses. The Amira is a great camera, and you're going to see the Amira in the list for Sundance a couple of times. But frustratingly, it's not really taken off in this world, I think partially because of lenses. People love getting their hands on vintage cinema glass. People love getting their hands on, like, the high-end anamorphic lenses. You can do all that on the Mini. The smaller sensor in the Amira is really more designed for, like, documentary and TV work, and it's not necessarily going to work with every cinema lens that you've ever had out there in the universe. The next big story, and it's blowing up my entire Twitter feed this morning, is the Academy Awards have decided to pull some of the technical categories out of the ceremony. So whereas previously Best Cinematography and Best Editing were announced live, they will now be announced after the fact. The announcement will happen during the commercial break. Then after the commercial break, they will go back and they will show you who the winner is. I have deeply mixed feelings about this. Obviously, I'm not, I, like, I don't care that much about the Academy Awards. There's that notorious Filmo Sigmund quote where he said, the Academy Award is kind of like a weight around your neck. Like, if you look at everybody's resume, the year after the Academy Award, nobody works. Because everybody assumes, oh, well, they just won an Academy Award, but they must be so busy. And I think what he said was, yeah, but there's no money taped under the statue. And uh, people want to keep working and keep making movies. And it doesn't always benefit everyone equally. Uh, there's that other famous thing about the Academy Awards that as a director, you're more interested in winning your actors' awards, right? So if you're a director that's always getting actors' Oscars, you're going to be able to keep working because actors want to work with you. Whereas, like, the best directing Oscar, it is nice, but Hitchcock never got it. So the Academy Awards themselves, the ceremony, I don't care about that much. I haven't been to an Oscar party in years. I usually do something else that night. What's frustrating for me about this is not... Like, the awards will still be given out. It'll still have whatever impact it'll have on people's careers. And even if it might be short-term a drawback, I think long-term filmmakers generally appreciate the recognition. The issue is, I get where the Academy is coming from, that most of America doesn't care about the editors and the cinematographers. Most of America is there for the director, writer, and performers. And I get it. And they're trying to keep their ratings up. 
But I don't know if the ratings are down because of the cinematography and editing award so much as ratings are just generally down because people don't tend to watch things live like they do anymore. And robbing the general public of the ability to learn about these subjects by watching the awards is a real bummer to me. And it's a real frustration. I think it's a real missed opportunity. For me, I think about the Academy Awards as like recognizing great work, but also about educating people about all of the work that goes into making movies. Look, Academy Awards are complicated and holy crap, do they need to get way more diverse and they really need to start recognizing a more diverse body of talent. But they also help America remember that there are people out there making these things, that these things don't magically exist, that the stars and everything, that like a director crafted performances and that a writer wrote the words and a cinematographer created the images. And having all of that recognized, I think, is really important. And so, like, even if it takes a rating hit, I wish they kept those in less for the recognition of the individuals, but for the recognition of the discipline and promoting that discipline to the wider marketplace. I would venture, I guess, that a lot of people who work in cinematography now first heard the term cinematography. The first time I heard the term cinematography was watching the Academy Awards when I was, like, 14 or something with my parents. I didn't know what a cinematographer was before that. And then I heard it in that scenario, and I think that that promotion is what people are really going to miss about this. This is obviously a transitional Academy Awards. There's not going to be a host. The Academy is trying to figure out what its position is in the new universe where television ratings are the be-all and end-all. And I recognize that for the Academy to do all of its great educational work, it needs to advertising revenue. That is how a lot of these things get paid for. So I get it. But I also, I mean, maybe America loves all of those best song performances. It could just be one of those things that that is legitimately what everybody is watching. It is very hard to tell. Next up in tech news, Panasonic has finally launched a full-frame mirrorless camera, the S1. So here's what's exciting about that. Obviously, Sony is sitting there like, hey, guys, we've had full-frame mirrorless cameras for four years. The full-frame mirrorless market was Sony's alone for a very long time, and it treated them really well. They were uh, really the ones who sort of like created that marketplace, drove that marketplace. And every time you see like a theatrically released feature shot on the A7S II or anything like that, or every music video in the world, Sony built that market from scratch. Last summer, Nikon and Canon came in and did mirrorless uh, full-frame cameras as well, which is cool, but for me, not as cool as Panasonic doing it. And the reason why is because for the mirrorless market, Right, Not the full-frame mirrorless market, the like smaller mirrorless market that originally came about. As much as I'm shooting this right now on a Fujifilm X, X-H1 because I am a big Fujifilm fan, holy cow, Panasonic really created that market with the GH4 and the GH5. Those cameras were huge in documentary and YouTube and all sorts of applications for giving you really amazing cinematic images and performance while simultaneously being very affordable to the mass market. So Panasonic has, a, has been a big player in that space. Additionally, up at the top end of cinema, if you look at what cameras people are shooting on, it's Alexa, it's RED, it's Sony, but it's not Panasonic, even though personally I love the Vericam. I think the Vericam is amazing, and it shows up a lot on TV. They shot the deuce on a Vericam. I love the Vericam. But the Panasonic is the last of the major top-end cinema cameras to have no full-frame cinema offerings. So, Vericam, super 35mm sensor. Venice, medium uh, full-frame sensor. Uh, Sony Venice, uh, red DSMC2. You can get a Monstro sensor. Obviously, there's uh, the Alexa LF and the Alexa 65, which was even bigger. So you have all of those, and those are all wonderful and amazing. 
And it's really been a bummer that Panasonic hasn't been in there. Panasonic is a big company, and they're going to survive, and I'm not worried about them going out of business. But I have been a little bit bummed. The EVA1 I really love. I think that was probably a year too late. Um, and I think that they are in a position where they're trying to play comeback a little bit. Like, after the dominance of the DVX100 and the HVX200, they should have continued to own this market. And they slipped a little bit. The EVA1 is a major step at a comeback. I love that camera. And I think full-frame mirrorless at the small end is a really good sign for them. It's within reasonable time next to the uh, Canon and Nikon. It's using an open lens mount format, which is really good. Canon's using a Canon thing. Nikon's using a Nikon thing. But Panasonic is using the open one. Now, there's not a lot of other people using the open one. But we always know that lens manufacturers, third-party lens manufacturers like Sigma, they'll support all the big ones and they'll support the open one too. So there will be lens options, which will be really nice. But then on top of all that, A, I'm really excited about them keeping that market share in mirrorless. But B, it's also really exciting because whoever that team is that was working on that mirrorless camera, doing that full frame sensor for that um, mirrorless camera are still at Panasonic. And all that expertise from working with that and getting video out of that, because Panasonic is very smart. They know that a lot of people are going to be shooting video with that. And I'm sure they have put a lot of work into those video features. I think we are really looking at Panasonic getting into the full-frame sensor cinema place, and I think that's really exciting. I think that should be really exciting for indie film producers because I love Panasonic cameras, and they are often more affordable. And depending upon all of the various things you're juggling, sometimes they are the smarter choice. There are definitely jobs in my career where the choice of switching from something like an Alexa to something like a Vericam, where the image quality is phenomenal. You can get amazing, beautiful images out of the Vericam. The deuce shot the Vericam. Great looking show. If that allows you to get like more G&E hands or more lighting or more, or a better set of lenses, it's a variable that you want in the equation. And I've always really appreciated having Panasonic in the race. And I'm really excited to see what happens when Panasonic keeps working with full frame sensors up at the high end of the the Vericam full frame, whatever that will be called, I'm very excited about. I think we're going to see some really interesting things coming out from Panasonic there. That being said, I'm going to say the same thing about full frame, which is I love it. The depth of field is very shallow. You have to be prepared for it. And I still shoot a lot of video on my X-H1 because I like that the smaller sensor is a bigger depth of field. And it gives me a little bit more flexibility when working on smaller projects. I think of full frame sensors as being bigger projects. I've got a dedicated first AC, a whole wireless follow focus. I got the whole team. That's what I'm going to be using the full-frame sensors for. I don't personally know if I really want to do a lot of, like, it's me running around with a camera, which everybody does. On the full-frame sensors, I don't know if the trade-off in the lower noise is always worth it in terms of the tinier depth of field. Last little bit of camera news that came up. In Dubai, there's a photo show going on, and Fuji had a big presence there. And Fuji is showing two journalists the first physical Mock-ups is the wrong word because they're functional, but it doesn't look like it's the final finish on the body of the 100 medium format camera that is probably going to come out in 2020. This is a medium format sensor. Full frame, medium format, even bigger. As big as we're probably going to reasonably see anytime soon. Fuji's been out with the whole G-series of medium format for a couple years now, doing mostly HD. This is the first one, the 100 where it seems likely that they're really going to take video seriously. Meaning that the autofocus is going to be really tuned to video. It looks like they're going to have PDF face detect autofocus, really good for motion subjects. Uh, it also looks like it's going to be cranking up 4K. So there's a lot of excitement, I think, with that Fuji's announced that this is coming. And I think there's even more excitement that it's out there physical in the world. 
Last subject today, we're going to do Hey Professor, which is when anybody can reach out to me on Twitter and ask me a question. We had a great question from Dave. I forget his name. But Dave asked, Hey, Professor, do you trust the color accuracy of Frame.io? And I'm going to say yes and no. Yes, in that I don't think Frame.io changes the color at all in the image. No, in that I don't trust whatever the client is watching it on on their end. So one of the biggest frustrations we all have in filmmaking is we can't control the client environment. If I'm sending out a cut for color notes, for instance, I'm going to use Frame.io because I really like the interface and I really like the way the notes can roll back into the edit application and there's all sorts of great integrations there. But I don't actually really trust what the client's watching on because if they're watching on a Dell laptop, it's going to look different than a MacBook Pro. 2013 MacBook Pro is going to look different than 2015 or 2018. And I don't know what room they're in. I've had clients send me notes from the beach watching on an iPad where they don't like the way things look. And I'm like, there's not a lot I can do to make it look better on your iPad at the beach. Why are you even reading the iPad at the beach? That's what the Kindle is for. Or like a physical paperback that you don't mind getting wet. So it is a very tricky situation where I don't hold it against Frame.io. I think Frame.io's color technology is very accurate in terms of uploading the files. Obviously, the background of Frame.io, Emery, the founder of Frame.io, had a color grading company, and that's one of the things that drove the creation of Frame.io to begin with. I think that they take color reproduction very seriously, but I think that they're just a step in the pipe, right? Like we have the broadcast monitor and the suite, and then we have Frame.io, and then we have the client's laptop. I think like this step is fine. I don't think Frame.io is changing anything, but whatever the hell the client is watching it on is unpredictable. So I don't currently really feel like this is the be all and end all. If I can get people in the room, I still want to get people in the room looking together at a broadcast monitor, evaluating images. On the flip side, it does seem like the end step is getting more consistent. I feel like iPads generation to generation aren't changing as much. I feel like uh, MacBook Pros are getting more consistent. So the problem there is obviously software. If I download that file, I'm looking at it in VLC or I'm looking at it in QuickTime Player 10. And I'm seeing big differences there. And so Frame.io is really nice because at least I know with every client, they're watching it in that Frame.io window. They're usually not downloading because Frame.io has its great combining tools. So I would leave it with that. The final thing I will say, I'm probably going to warn about this a lot in the podcast this year, is remember QuickTime Player 7 is ending. The next Mac update, it will be gone. I'm a big QuickTime 7 player fan. It's probably time to move to VLC because if you've noticed with QuickTime 10, a lot of times you open things and you get that little converting bar. Because QuickTime 10 doesn't support the wide array of codecs you did with QuickTime 7. Even something as standard as QuickTime Player 7 is now getting end of life. And it's important to remember that there's a variety of tools we can use to evaluate video images. All right, well, I hope that is a good little overview of the week in film tech that you guys need to pay attention to this week for February 14th. Oh, happy Valentine's Day 2019. This has been another week in the Week in Film Tech. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you subscribe to your podcasts. If you want an email every week that reminds you, A, there's a new episode, but B, has like links to all the articles for deeper dives into these subjects that we're talking about, you can go to recycast.com and sign up for our mailing list. And then every time there's a new episode, it'll be like, hey... Here's what Charles is talking about this week, and here's some other articles that Charles is referencing. And then you should follow us on Instagram at OnRecky. Thank you. I'll see you guys next week.